The shelling began at 4.30 a.m. on April 12, 1861. The fort's commander, Major Robert Anderson, had been expecting it. After all, his appointment the previous fall had partially been made to check rising tensions in the area, and his decision to abandon the nearby and less well-positioned Fort Moultrie and his move to his current location in the harbor had not helped matters any. But the winter of 1860-1861 had been hard. Rations and fuel supplies were running low. The fort was not completely finished or fully armed. Not that that last point mattered because it was short-staffed to boot. Anderson's position had set off a furious scramble among political officials about what was to be done. Finally, it was decided that the fort had to be resupplied. But that choice meant those tensions now escalated into full-out hostility. At 3.20 a.m., Anderson received a note from the opposing commander saying that the shelling would begin in one hour's time. When the appointed hour came, Captain George S. James offered the honor to a Virginian named Roger Pryor. But Pryor declined, saying that he could not fire the first shot that would start a war. So, at least in Pryor's recollection, James took that honor to himself, firing a mortar shell onto Anderson's position. And with that first shell landing on the island in Charleston Harbor, in the place known as Fort Sumter, the Civil War kicked off in earnest. Pryor might have had a sense of destiny, which is why he refused to fire the war's first shot. Because today we know it would take four long, bloody years for that conflict to come to a close, and decades for the immediate fallout to be cleared away. In many ways, we are still dealing with the repercussions today. There is no doubt that the start of the Civil War was at least a magnitude 7.5 earthquake on the historic Richter scale. And, importantly for our purposes, the rumblings were felt as far away as the sparsely populated spit of dirt and rock that some people were now calling Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 37, The Earthquake and the Hurricane. By the time the earthquake that is the Civil War hit, Arizona and New Mexico were already dealing with, uh, just to keep the metaphor going, we'll call it a hurricane, all of their own. The Bascom Affair, coming as it did a month before Texas joined the Confederacy, and two months before the firing on Fort Sumter, had set Cochise, Mongos Coloradas, and many of the Chiricahua Apache on the literal warpath. Cochise, who always had a temper and could be very revenge-minded, would say several times in later years that the incident had put a deep hatred of the Americans in him. In 1869, he would remark, quote, I tried the Americans once, and they broke the treaty first, the officers, I mean. This was at the pass, end quote. A year later, he told American William F.M. Arney that he, quote, had been guilty of murders and theft since 1861, when he was treacherously seized and six of his braves hung, and he escaped by cutting his way through his prison, end quote. And finally, in 1872, he said, quote, 
The worst place of all is Apache Pass. There, Indians, one my brother, was murdered. Their bodies were hung up and kept there till they were skeletons. I have retaliated with all my might. End quote. At first, though, there was almost an eerie moment of calm before the hurricane hit. The Chiricahua Apache, though they would strike with deadly force within a matter of months, had essentially scattered. Many of the Chaconans under Cochise had retreated to Fronteras in Sonora, knowing that the Americans could not touch them across the international border that they cherished so much. Though Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney does say that Cochise and Mangas Coloradas may have cleared out the livestock from the Butterfield Station near San Simón first. Down in Mexico, Cochise bided his time, gathering allies and planning retribution. When the Chiricahuan hurricane made landfall, no one was really safe. In the words of historian and author Paul Andrew Hutton, quote, Within 60 days of Cut the Tent, the Apaches seemed to strike everywhere. Cochise's warriors hit five stage stations, repeatedly attacked the mail coaches, and swept through the Santa Cruz Valley, killing 150 of the hated white eyes. End quote. In late April, the first major reprisal began on an American party traveling through Doubtful Canyon, near Stein's Peak, which sits just east of the Arizona state line, north of where I-10 crosses into New Mexico today. Though the fighting took all day, and the Apache did take several casualties, Cochise himself is said to have been wounded, the Apache wound up killing nine people. Two of the men knew Cochise personally and even tried to parlay with him. Much like the unfortunate stage driver from the Bascom affair, Wallace, they soon learned that their relationship had dramatically changed. Author Terry Mort writes that, unfortunately, these two were captured alive. A newspaper article from the time recounts their fate. It says, quote, Near the station, the bodies of two men were found, tied by the feet to trees, their heads reaching within 18 inches of the ground, their arms extended and fastened to pickets, and the evidence of a slow fire under their heads. The bodies had been pierced with arrows and lances. They were so disfigured as to render recognition impossible. End quote. It's also estimated that this attack destroyed or seized $8,335 in property, including 13 Colt pistols and 13 rifles. Shortly thereafter, on May 3, 1861, Cochise struck again, hitting a freight train heading east from Fort Buchanan. In the area of San Simon, Cochise and 30 warriors attacked after the train had stopped for the night and let their animals out to graze. A running battle then ensued over something like four or five miles, with the well-armed, well-manned party managing to keep the Apache at bay and even killed a few of them, though the Apache still managed to take at least 17 animals. Two weeks after that, Cochise struck at a small party between Fort Buchanan and some springs two miles south of the fort, managing to kill a soldier and steal some weapons and more livestock. A few weeks after that, he struck again at a small party heading between Sylvester Maury's Patagonia mine and the fort, killing one man and wounding another. Cochise is said to only have had 30 to 60 warriors during April or May, 
but this number is thought to have doubled by June 1861, a sign that other bands, and possibly some White Mountain or Coyotero Apache under Francisco, who I briefly mentioned last week, had joined the fray. Cochise and his band were still making headquarters down in Sonora, meaning they were nigh untouchable by the Americans in their base. The head of Fort Buchanan even sent a note to Pesquera. Remember him? The guy who had unseated Gandra and was now governor of Sonora? To request permission to come south and teach these natives a lesson. But their request was denied. Cochise returned to Arizona in June 1861, leading a whirlwind campaign up and down the Santa Cruz Valley, striking and raiding with a party of somewhere between 80 and 100 warriors. Charles Poston and Raphael Pumpelli came across the Kanoa Inn shortly after such an attack, with Pumpelli describing the aftermath by saying, quote, The sides of the house were broken in, and the court was filled with broken tables and doors, while fragments of crockery and ironware lay mixed in heaps with grain and the content of mattresses. We saw a naked body. As is the case of many of the settlers, the first Apaches he had seen were his murderers. We found the bodies of the other American, an Apopago Indian. These bodies were pierced by hundreds of lance wounds. End quote. During these campaigns, Cochise would also have another run-in with Bascom near the Whetstone Mountains, who had been sent to help track him down following a raid on a local ranch. Cochise recognized Bascom and actually made several charges at the Americans, who were outnumbered. The Americans retreated to a more defensible position, which kept the Apache from overrunning them. Since Cochise could not get to his adversary directly, he is reported to have taunted and cursed at Bascom in English before retreating. At this same time, Mangas Coloradas and the Chigeni Apache he led also began making attacks in what is today New Mexico. Though they originally stayed out of the retaliatory strikes Cochise was conducting, a combination of American encroachment, familiar ties with Cochise, and whether or not the whole whipping story is true, Mangos Coloradas led his people down the path to violence. And with his father-in-law now alongside him, Cochise at this time really moves from being just a notable Chaconan to really being a leader among the various Chiricahua Apache bands. He would relocate to the area of Cook's Peak, just north of modern Deming, New Mexico, to help in Mangas Colorado's campaign to drive the White Eyes from that area. This place, especially an adjacent canyon with the spring, became one of the most dangerous places for travelers in the New Mexico Territory, even eclipsing Apache Pass, which was no walk in the park either. It is estimated that between 1861 and 1863, Apaches killed around 100 Americans in this place, and travelers would report seeing the bones and the other grisly reminders of wagon trains that had not made it through. On July 20th, 1861, a party of seven Americans rode into the area. Now, this was no regular party, but a group of frontier-hardened men selected for a dangerous task. With the disappearance of the Butterfield Mail Line, which we will get into in just a bit, they'd have been tasked with delivering the mail to California. This party was ambushed by a group of Apache that may have numbered somewhere between one to two hundred. The team quickly stripped their coach of all its valuables and headed for higher ground, 
reportedly sending the animals pulling their coach toward the Apache, hoping this would appease them. Maybe in earlier times it would have, but not now that Cochise was out for blood. You probably don't need me to say this, but seven men stood no chance against literally hundreds of Apache. However, they did manage to hold out for at least a couple days. Based on testimonies of those who came across the scene just a few days later, the seven Americans had managed to build some defenses out of rocks at the top of a small hill. The Apaches fired at them, and the men fired back. James H. Tevis, the old station manager at Apache Pass, who you might remember from back in episode 34, had a very low opinion of Cochise, was astounded that every rock seemed pockmarked with bullet holes. The Apache are said to have taken a lot of casualties in this fight, with Mangus Colorados supposedly telling Jack Swilling that he'd lost 25 men in this encounter, with others wounded. William S. Owry, who had written to join Bascom at Apache Pass, reported that 175 Apache had been killed. Sweeney says that both these numbers, even Swilling's, are undoubtedly exaggerations, as the Apache were never known to do suicidal charges to overrun positions and avoided any situation where casualties would mount up too high. At the same time, however, both Cochise and Mongus Colorados would later commend the bravery and tenacity of these seven men. The attribution is really muddled, but either Cochise or Mongus Colorados is said to have remarked that with 25 such men, they could have whipped the whole United States. Now, we do have to make one important point here. Though Cochise had managed to gather around him a truly impressive number of warriors from all different bands, he is still losing men in these engagements. The American account of how many Native Americans they were killing are doubtlessly exaggerated, but what we can say is that the Apaches were falling in numbers that hadn't been previously seen when they were just making small raids. In fact, as James H. McClintock noted, quote, the operations of Cochise probably would have been checked in an early stage had not the Civil War intervened and the troops withdrawn, end quote. Which leads us to the other great disaster happening simultaneously with the Apache hurricane. Because as Cochise watched people flee from their ranches and soldiers leave their forts, he may have honestly thought his retribution was working. He was driving out the hated white eyes he may have been unaware of the giant historic earthquake that had struck far to the east at Fort Sumter. Okay, so we need to turn our attention now to what the outbreak of the Civil War meant. McClintock would write, quote, It is probable that the greatest force in the early development of Arizona was the accession of her population due to the operations of the Civil War, end quote. That is looking back from 1916, 50 years after the whole war and its immediate impacts played out. In 1861, this statement would have been ludicrous. Arizona, such as it was, consisted of a few small mining camps, settlements at Tucson and Tubac, and some army forts. And now most of that is going to be stripped away. Charles Poston, with the conflict still in recent memory, wrote, quote, the Civil War and its results set Arizona back about 20 years, end quote. One of the first blows was the discontinuation of the contract for the Butterfield Overland Mail. 
Despite its remarkable achievements, it could not survive without a government subsidy. With the war on, that money could be spent elsewhere. Worse yet, the mail line was now impractical, running as it did through southern states bent on leaving the Union. So in March 1861, the same month that Texas joined the Confederacy and a month after the Bascom Affair, the government contract with Butterfield was not renewed. In this sense, Arizona was now isolated from the rest of the country. Author Terry Mort also notes that the discontinuation of the mail contract also meant that all those who benefited economically from the line, teamsters, farriers, blacksmiths, harness makers, local ranchers who supplied the stations with food and animal feed, even those who peddled whiskey, all were hit hard. Then came the second big news that hurt everyone, the withdrawal of federal troops. As you might imagine, the outbreak of a full-out civil war in the East necessitated the call for soldiers to head back there, so the forts in the sparsely populated West were to be abandoned. Charles Poston recalled that one day in June 1861, a soldier from Fort Buchanan rode into Tubac and handed him a copy of a general order that had gone out to the military post in Arizona. In short, this order read that the companies were to march east immediately and were to burn or otherwise destroy the forts. This order makes a bit more sense when you consider the larger picture. According to author Ray Colton, the Confederacy was eyeing all the military resources in western forts for potential seizure. There was a large amount of military equipment and supplies in the west, Colton writes, all of which were valuable to the Confederate cause. Remember that Jefferson Davis, now the head of the Confederacy, had served as the U.S. Secretary of War, so he would have been in a position to know that supplies and munitions in Arizona and New Mexico were immense. So by late July 1861, Fort Breckinridge and Fort Buchanan were both raised by their own troops, which shortly started heading west. But munitions and supplies weren't the only things in Arizona and New Mexico that had caught the eye of the rebels. Remember that the California goldfields were still churning out impressive quantities of precious metals, which made the Pacific coast too tempting a target to pass up. Add in the mineral wealth being discovered in Nevada, Colorado, and yep, you guessed it, Arizona, and the southwest was looking like a prime spot for an invasion. Also recall that it was Davis and his fellow Southerners agitating for a railroad line to California through Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas in the 1850s. If that could now be established and those territories seized, the Confederacy could have access to ports on the Pacific coast, ones that the Union forces couldn't blockade. The rebels were also looking for support. The southern sympathies of those living in Arizona we went over in episode 32, but in short, many of the prominent men there were southerners by birth and were at the very least open to joining their brethren. Various hostile Amerindian tribes were not seen so much as allies, but potential distractions to keep what Union presence might stick around occupied. It was also assumed, according to Colton, that the Mormons up in Utah would swear allegiance to whatever government wasn't the one in Washington, D.C., that had done nothing to help them in the 1830s and 1840s, and had just sent an army to put down a non-existent rebellion. Neither the Amerindian nor Mormon support was going to pan out as expected, 
but the Confederacy did receive a healthy boost of talent from the officer corps stationed out west. Between late April and June 1861, at least eight high-ranking officers defected to the Southern cause, though the split among the enlisted men did not favor one side over the other. As just an interesting aside, you might remember from last week that 2nd Lieutenant John Rogers Cook had been on the eastbound Butterfield coach that was attacked in Apache Pass as part of the Bascom affair. Well, the only reason he had been on that coach in the first place was because he was heading back east to officially resign his commission in order to join the Confederate Army. With federal troops pulling back or defecting, the thin veneer of safety and protection that had been established in Arizona was now gone. Many abandoned the territory. Others huddled together in Tucson for safety in numbers from Apache attacks. Poston relates that he and his leading employees held a meeting to discuss their options in the wake of the troops pulling out. Ultimately, it was agreed that without the soldiers, quote, the Apaches would come down upon us by the hundred, and the Mexicans would cut our throats, end quote. If that last bit seems a bit harsh and racist, you also have to remember that in the spring of 1861, Poston's brother John had been killed by a gang of Mexicans near mine in the Cerro Colorado Mountains between Amado and Aravaca. To be fair, however, it's because John had a Mexican foreman executed because he claimed to have caught him stealing silver from the mine and sneaking it down to Mexico. I mention all this because a concrete grave for John can still be visited in the Cerro Colorado site, a short distance off Aravaca Road. Personal motivations aside, Poston and his crew decided to reduce the ore they had on hand, pay off their laborers, and shut down operations. Poston recounts, with some credibility, subsequent brazen attacks by both Apaches and Mexicans that stole a large number of animals and compelled them to evacuate Tubac. Those few souls from Poston's operation who chose to stay huddled together with other survivors in Tucson. The government of the United States, Poston wrote with some bitterness, abandoned the first settlers of Arizona to the merciless Apache. And Poston wasn't the only leading man with some antipathy towards the United States. As one historian puts it, the population of Arizona was, quote, almost universally Southern and disunion, end quote. In February 1861, the citizens of Mesilla, which you might remember from episode 32 had actually declared their own government separate from New Mexico the previous year, called for a convention the following month. When this convention did get together in March, Almost predictably, it declared that the area would join the Confederacy. A similar conference appears to have occurred during February 1861 in Tucson, with the same results. I say appears because my sources are a bit muddled on this. There was definitely a meeting with this result that happened in 1861, but some put it at February around the same time as Masilla's decision, while others say it was in August after the Confederate troops had ridden in. Others give the impression that there were two meetings, one in the early spring and another in August. My impression is that there were likely two meetings, which is why the confusion exists in the sources. But whenever this meeting happened, definitely in attendance was that charming rogue who had named Arizona William Claude Jones, still supporting the creation of a territory, 
just swapping out the Union for the Confederacy. Jones's enthusiasm was such that when an Arizona volunteer company received a homemade Confederate flag, he delivered a warm, glowing speech in the plaza of Mesilla, calling for the Confederate troops to be sent to the West. We also see soldier-turned-mine-owner Sylvester Mowry starting to throw his weight behind the rebels too. Always an advocate to make Arizona its own territory, and disappointed by the congressional failure to act in the years leading up to the Civil War, this seemed a good way to achieve his ends. Though, as just an ominous bit of foreshadowing, his support for the Confederacy would become something that Maori would have cause to regret in the near future. Though this tacit support by Masilla and Tucson probably didn't lead directly to it, that enthusiasm certainly must have been a consideration for the Confederate invasion of southern New Mexico. Confederate Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor, who had taken up at Fort Bliss in Texas, moved into New Mexico on July 23rd. Originally, he was going to attack Fort Fillmore, near modern Las Cruces, but the fort was actually tipped off by two rebels who were both former U.S. Army soldiers and were apparently rethinking their allegiances. Seeing that the fort had gotten wise to his plan, Baylor and his troops instead marched into the welcoming arms of the community of Mesilla. U.S. Major Isaac Lind was sent to evict Baylor, but an indecisive skirmish followed and Lind pulled back at nightfall. Lind then ordered his soldiers to fall back to Fort Fillmore, and finally to abandon the fort entirely, feeling it could not be defended. However, Baylor and his men saw clouds of dust from all this activity, surmised what was happening, and moved to both take Fort Fillmore and capture Lynn and his company. This they did, and Lynn surrendered, almost without a fight, leading many of those under him, not to mention a few historians, to brand him a coward. With this rather easy hurdle now behind him, Baylor returned to Mesilla. It's there that on August 1st, 1861, he unilaterally declared the Confederate Territory of Arizona. It was still the long, squat rectangle running between Texas and California, with the line drawn at 34 degrees latitude, north of modern-day Phoenix, but still excluding Santa Fe and other Union-held areas of New Mexico. The capital was fixed at Mesilla, and Baylor declared himself as the military governor of the new territory. In Tucson, this news was greeted rapturously, and another convention was held. That is, if you hold to my two-meeting theory. 68 Americans still living in Tucson voted to officially bring their community into Baylor's self-declared Confederate Territory of Arizona. As part of this, the convention elected Granfield Aury, making his now third name check in our podcast, to be their delegate to the Confederate Congress for Arizona. Unfortunately, it appears that the Tucson citizenry may have been overcome by the rapture of the moment, because when Aury reached the Confederate capital, he discovered that Baylor and his associates had already appointed another person to this post. Aury didn't contest this for long, but rather decided to resign as a delegate and raise his own force to help fight in the war with the Yankees. There appears to have been almost immediately some disagreement between the twin cities of Arizona, Tucson and Mesilla. While both wanted to cut ties with the United States, both also wanted to be preeminent when it came to deciding what the new territory would look like and how it would operate. 
Mowry would write that Baylor had fallen in with the wrong crowd who, quote, may do the territory infinite harm, end quote. Mowry was much less nice, characterizing Baylor and his appointees as, quote, a dirty clique of greedy cormorants, end quote. If you don't know what a cormorant is, you are not alone. I had to look it up myself. They are sea-dwelling birds that are noted for having a voracious appetite. Whether Baylor was hero or villain didn't really matter because he had practically waltzed into New Mexico with barely any resistance and declared the territory as part of the Confederacy. Arizona was now officially in rebel hands. So join me next week as we look at the full thrust of Confederate troops into New Mexico and Arizona and see the Union deciding how best to take back this depopulated, dry, and dusty spot that, several years ago, no one wanted in their country in the first place. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.